And now, enjoy this free Jason Modcast show. Welcome to My Public Life as an American Nerd. I am your host, David K. Montoya. Okay, kids, we have got a treat. Now, if anybody knows me that listens to the show, they know that I am a legitimate wrestling fan. I grew up wrestling. In fact, uh, I wanted to be a wrestler for many years until I got into, well, writing and, and being creative. But this gentleman was brought to me in the way of Steve, um, who is one of the promoters that's helping me get people together for the Pop Culture Expo happening in Victorville this year. And when I first heard about him, I was like, oh my gosh, I remember he was a, a manager. And the big one was that he as far as my memory serves me correctly, is he was the manager for, at the time, was Nikolai Volkov. And I remember he, I don't know if he was the manager for Iron Sheik, but I remember that they were a team together. And that's where it's it's imprinted in my mind. So today, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Mr. Nikita Briznikov. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much, David. Great introduction. Thank you. I know we, we, we've chatted, and that was kind of one of the things that I wanted to hold back on, was that I actually wanted to be a, a professional wrestler. I'm six foot two, and right now I'm about 220, 225. And honestly, from a little boy going almost into adulthood, that was it. I was going to be a professional wrestler, and, and that's kind of the, the love that I have for the business is because I honestly thought that that's where I was going. So when I have an opportunity to talk to a professional like you, I just, if, if I kind of seem swoon, it's because it's just how important the business is to me as a fan and nothing but respect to you. And I, I just, I, I can't, <laughs> I'm trying to keep my fanboy level at a minimum. Uh, I'm very excited, but welcome to the show, sir. It's a pleasure, seriously, because look, we're of white times. Now, see, a lot of times people will say, well, I guess you're living your dream, and I'm like, no, I, there's no way I thought this was possible. This meeting was a chance meeting that I came upon with the whole and then when I got introduced to what the indie scene was, it was like, then the bug bit me. So, yeah, I'm eternally grateful to have had the opportunity. And still do. I'm not done yet, but it's like, uh, I never had aspirations, especially at the time being in the police department. And then, boom, you know, it's like, that's great. But we love it because, like you say, a fan, for me, I guess I was 12 years old, it has never left me. And it, it never will. At one time, I was mad. And the chief day strong goes, you're going to go away. It's in your blood. It's like, chief, the old oracle was always correct. And yep, without a doubt, 
And for us as diehard fans, you know, it's like, hey, when I'm in the presence of people like I was just a cauliflower Alex Club a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months at this point, and, you know, meeting Dory Falk Jr. and some other people that I had never encountered before, you're humbled by that because that's, those are people that touched us and it's like, wow, you know, this is amazing. And the way you speak is the way it needs to be spoken with respect. And I'm not ever going to knock anybody that gets in there and does whatever they do. Not my cup of tea sometimes what I see. You know, it's just like, my God, I, I don't understand what you're doing. But yeah, I give them credit for what they, what they get in there to do. Please don't get hurt. Take care of yourself and your partner. But uh, yeah, when, when we meet those that have paved the way, we treat them with respect and admiration. Um, one of the questions, like number one, is um, who did you, you know, as coming up in as far as the world of wrestling, who who were you a fan of? Who was like your big draw? Strongbow, Chief J. Strongbow. I mean, that's it. Uh, I've got pictures with, with me. I was a video collector, and I'm saying video. I used to have the uh, big tape, the VHS tape. So, when we went to the arenas, there was nothing like Stonewood. I mean, the chief was there, at least the color. He was quite wild. He doesn't matter. He can work with anybody, and you're just going to be entertained. But he, when he would speak to us, it was, because a lot of times I'll hear some people knocking and say, well, he wasn't a good talker. And it's like, what are you talking You don't understand the business then. He was trying to come across as a humble Indian who this was all new to him. Uh, at one point, as I was told early in his career for Nikolai, he did it she did an interview where he's walking around New York, he's looking at the skyscrapers and it's like, oh my and of course by that point he'd already been Joe Sharp of the Rebel down south, but he was recreated. So that's fine. And please let's not mention that again because a lot of times that was a, that was a sticking point. So it's like, okay, yeah, that's who he was, but we don't need to know what his heritage is. And by the way, he was his mother was Cherokee Indian, so a lot of times people want to first thing they want to throw at you. He was Italian. He was this. He was okay. Guess what? Uh, Mr. Spock wasn't a Vulcan. Okay, geez, just relax already or don't watch <laughs> it. So, but yeah, Strongbow was my idol. And Bruno, I mean, you know, hey, you were WWWF. It had to be Bruno, geez, without a doubt. And Bob Backlund. I was really deeply affected by Backlund to the point where I had the exercise wheel, I was doing it to the go, and I was like, yeah. There, there's another one when people say, well, Backlund, he couldn't draw. They had to stack the card. It's like, no. You go back and look at the old YouTube, or if you got the WWE Network, go look at some of those matches. When the garden erupts, because back one won, that's got nothing to do with stacking the card. That's got to do with the reaction to what he's doing. Right. They always stack the card, because that was their Black Friday. Madison Square Garden, if it didn't go in the black, 
the company was going to go under. It didn't matter what Baltimore, Boston, every place else was doing. They needed the garden to survive monthly. So it was like, yeah, those cards were stacked, but not because of anybody. I mean, in my description, each Madison Square Garden card on a monthly basis was a WrestleMania. <laughs> it surpassed anything they ever came up with, believe me. I, I, as, you know, um, let's see, how do I put this? I think a lot of that also has to do, and this is just my perception, you know, as an outsider looking in, is that the territory, you know, back territory days, um, you know, you, you didn't have the circulations that, you know, going from East Coast to West Coast and back to East Coast, mm -hmm. you were pretty much there. So you had to tell the story and keep it fresh on a continuum. So sometimes you had to do that. You had to, you know, stack the card. And, and you I'll know. I'll tell you what, David. You know, here's a good thing. Uh, this just came up today. Because I try to post something every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got the book when it was real. We'll talk about that. And that's very important to me. But within that book, Baltimore was its own territory. Yeah, it was part of the WWWF, but they had their own thing going through the Boston, Philadelphia. Now, today, I posted the, this date back in 1974 in the Garden. The main event was Bruno against John Polis. And a lot of us have said, we don't check that. John Polis was not making regular appearances. He's a great, one of the all-time greats, no question. But that show was about 4,000 short. Of a regular house because people just didn't know. Yeah, they had LA television in New York, but you know, not everybody had access to it. And it was kind of like, if you don't put somebody, if there was, there had to be that reason. And a lot of times people will say, well, it's a soap opera. Well, it had to be. Are you just watching two men in their underwear fighting? Big deal. It doesn't mean anything. It's I used to get that all the time. Line. Yeah, there's gotta be. It's just, Something there to make you want to come and see what's going to happen and how it's going to play out. But that was a great example because, yeah, Polis, they brought him in. At the time, a lot of programs were done with people like Walkie had finished, Nikolai was done at that point. And then the next month, Bruno and Chief were going to team up against the Valiant. So Chief and Calhoun wrestled the Valiant that night. They bloodied Calhoun. With Murdering the chief, Bruno hit the ring to make the stage, and it set up the next month. Oh my gosh, but I'd love to see that. I, yeah, I would too. I've never seen it, but uh, Bruno beat Polis with a backbreaker, and it's like, yeah, that's pretty substantial to just kill a guy flat out like that. Boom! And the only other time that was done, to my knowledge, Bruno of course beat Buddy Rogers with a backbreaker in the forty-eight seconds. Match when he won the belt, he's 17 to 63. So it was like, yeah. Other than that, uh, you know, it was pretty much a one and done. So it's, uh, in those days, yeah, territories, they, and what people don't understand a lot, the, when I say the garden had to, it was the Black Friday, the television show was geared towards New York. What was going to happen in the garden? Sure, it was great. You can pick it up, Bill Jack Oak was promoting Baltimore, Philadelphia, and wherever else Jack Witchie's place out there in uh, New England. And it's like, that's great. But our main concern for this television show was promoting the matches at the Garden. And 
I said, it all worked out. And it was fun to perfection. And I think that for like people like myself who had the opportunity to watch, you know, that on, you know, we were lucky enough to be in California, but to get that signal, the garden became like a magical place. Mm -hmm. It was, it was like a legendary places where dreams come true kind of thing, you know? Yeah. You were not going to see anybody, but even in the prelims, top talent people that could deliver because it was the garden. And there's no room for error. That's it. Boom. It's going to be the best show there is. Just like Ringling Brothers used to pronounce the greatest show on earth. Well, that was Worldwide Wrestling Federation and Madison Square Garden every month there and in every arena that they appeared. To me, I describe it as Christmas for us every month, without a doubt. I, I'm truly sorry for those that don't have the experience that we did to see the caliber of house shows. I know they run them still, but it's not like, uh, it's like a filler kind of thing. Unless it's a TV taping or a pay-per-view, and then it's like, yeah, okay, you're going to get that. With that kind of atmosphere, we carried every month. Yes. So I was like, yeah, that's great. You're lucky. Um, I want to dive in a little bit about your past before going into wrestling. Um, I did some digging and I found that now there was, uh, some miss. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. (laughs) Double overexposure. Um, it says that originally it, where I came across it, it said that you were a police officer, but as I looked more into your past, it, to be more accurate, you were 15 years on a force as a detective. Is that correct? Yes, 27 years total experience, and then I'm retired as a detective sergeant. And a lot of my expertise was in the field of domestic violence. I was actually the coordinator for the city of Baltimore Police Department, where that what that meant was. Each of the nine districts had their own domestic violence unit, and my squad coordinated what went on working closely with victims of both domestic violence, sexual assaults, and unbeknownst to us, before it had the title human trafficking, because the people kind of shy away from it when they think of human trafficking. They always think of somebody with staying in the head and putting a bag and carry off someplace. But human trafficking is also what was commonly known as prostitution. These hmm. girls, and most of the time they're underage, are trafficked. And, you know, you hear it talk about slavery. That's human slavery. And if somebody partakes of that, and they say, oh, well, it's just, it's, you know, it's not just anything. You're abusing and using another human being. I mean, come on. And again, a lot of times they're children, so it's like, hey. Uh, so we, we were very big as far as providing assistance for victims, outreach programs, and making sure that everything was done properly. I mean, sometimes I'm a police recruit from the human race, so you're going to have the problems, and you're going to have the nitwits, and you're going to have Somebody's got to be there to make sure mistakes aren't made. So that's what we did. Because that is every crime is horrendous. And that's why the, the terminology hate crime sometimes makes me scratch my head. It's like if you murder somebody, I don't think you can do, hate them any more than that. But whatever, okay. 
that that tax on more to a sentence was not so bad because let me tell you the justice system please that's that's a circus right there but it's okay so we did that we worked closely with the victim I still do I still work with the human trafficking network and other individuals I at one point had a television or a radio show with a professor out in California. And uh, that got mixed because of some uh, miscommunication with the union. Things didn't work out quite right. But I still do things with people that uh, I don't get a dime for it. I don't look for it in that scenario. It's what we need to be doing. Now, if there's a movie or a TV series, that, that would be great. You know, I'd be more than happy to take that to a next level and put it in the limelight because it is something that we really need to address. But And my other soapbox is cancer, because I'm a prostate cancer survivor, so it's like I always tell the men, get the blood test, because that's how they're going to they save me. I got early detection to a blood test. In fact, some state athletic commission doctors were saying, hey, your numbers are so low. Don't let them do that torture to you, that uh, biopsy. But I said, look, I trust this doctor because my father had testicular cancer. And it was like, they watched me carefully. I said, I trust this guy. It was torture, without a doubt. But he came to me and he said, you know what? Uh, and it, this was the last, I call it the last good weekend of my life. I just got back from Michigan having a great weekend with Iron Sheik and Nikolai at a convention. We were at the Motor City Comic Con. Had a beautiful time. And then I get the telephone call Monday morning. It's like, man, it's just like the eager people describe. My head was spinning. I'm thinking, man, my life's coming to an end. It was no picnic, but uh, hey, I'm still here and life is okay. You know, it's just an adjustment that we get through it. That that that's good though, because early, like you said, early now, um. I won't go too far into it, but I have 20 years experience in the medical field. And I, I know firsthand that early detection is the key to success. Yeah. yeah. And for the women, I always say breast cancer because we lost our sister-in-law with that very young age. So, you know, for us, I would say it's prostate cancer to the females, it's the breast cancer. Yes. Early, early detection, you get yourself tested. Now, see, for the men, you know, sometimes you want to play the ostrich and just pretend it's not going to, if I don't think of it, it won't be there. That's not going to work. And then the other thing is they don't want that other hands-on test. It's like, well, you know what? That's actually too late. It's, it's so enlarged that they can feel it. That's bad news. You still need to get it addressed, but that blood test, it's just a stick thing. They take some blood and you're, you're good to go. Nobody's going to do anything else to you. Yep. And then they can make sure you PSA level. Where it should be. Um, I want to let's see. I'm looking at my notes here. One of the things that caught my attention is that it said it's documented that you were moonlighting while you were a detective, and you became. Um, now, initially, correct me if I'm incorrect. Um, you originally wanted to be an in-ring performer, but it was uh, Nikolai Nikolai Volkov who said yes. you don't you don't want to be a wrestler. You want to be a manager. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Because my big 
you know, you're, you're looking at the big picture and you're like, yeah, I want to be a wrestler. I want to do it. At the time, I was 230 pounds, so I, I was carrying good weight, six months. And they I said, no, no, everybody gets hurt. Or you have good jobs. I still police department. I was about midway through my career. But at that point, I was detective. I was not what you call in patrol where the schedule was off the wall. I mean, you could never maintain a wrestling schedule if you were still in patrol because that fluctuating days off and different needs. The detectives basically were nine to five, Monday through Friday, weekends off. And it, at that point, I had plenty of leave schedules backed up so that if I needed to take days here or there, I could. So I pressured Nikolai because he's like, no, 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 be managed. You know what Bill was on business, you manage me. And okay, okay. I, be, I don't want to be stupid managed, but I'll do it. And then, of course, I was really ridiculous. He said, I want to be like Chief. He said, you're good. I'm Russian. Now you could be Indian. I said, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so then... We sat down and uh, boom, well, we come up with this costume. And uh, at first, Nikolai said, "Just, just get the like a drawn a hat, put something red on it, and get the coat." And the was like, "Okay." So then, but over the years, this coat, which at first I thought maybe I'd be buried in it, like Bella Lugosi was with his Dracula costume, but I told the wife, "Nah, you call a Hall of Fame over there in Wichita Falls, Texas." You let those guys know, and they'll take it. But, uh, I got some good friends there, and they said, yeah, we want your gear when you're done. So it's like that coat has been such a part of me over the years. And it's like when I travel, I don't trust the airlines, but especially now with all of this stuff with President Trump and Russia, I'm like, I don't want some idiot to just put, do damage to it or just throw it someplace, but they could do stuff over that. Right. So I'm able to fold it up, even though it's a big, bulky, heavy winter coat, I'm able to fold it up into a carrying luggage. And my hat, I carry my hand. Boy, that gets some looks. But it's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not trusting this. Okay. It's not too much that the well, the coat's carrying now. It'd be shoulder boards, the collar boards. Those are authentic. But there was no cartoonish for a while. Then we, it was in some movies with me, so. You know, it made made it more legitimate. So there's, there's some value to it. But the hat, for sure. Oh, that's something I'm going to pay the three pennies for. So it's like, no, I'll hold this. No problem. It's right, right, right under the seat. Right here on between my feet. I'm good to go. No problem. And uh, I, I don't trust airlines. I hate flying anymore. It's just, I don't understand how we can put a man on the moon, which we just celebrated the 50th anniversary, but the friggin' airline can't get your luggage from point A to point B. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, I laugh because uh, a friend of mine just experienced that. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, I got another question for you, sir. Um, from that point where you were convinced to become a manager. How long did it take for you to get your face, first paying gig as a manager? And who was your uh, who was your um, your client? Well, that would be the one and only Killer Kowalski, one of the most beautiful people to ever walk the earth. I was, let me see, about uh, eight months into it, I'd say. About eight months into 
my career. So Nikolai says, I'm going to go have a show, two shows in Boston. Uh, Richard Byrne, Friday night. Walter's going to be refereeing and like co-sponsoring it. Then the next day is Walter's show. You want to go? I said, well, hell yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. And at that time, I'm taking every, any possibilities, any shot that I could take. So at that time, living in Baltimore to Boston, man, the ticket was 30 bucks to fly. No big deal. Boom. Now, Nikolai, of course, is transportation was covered, so for me, I bought my own ticket, we go there. Had lodging, so that was no problem. So we worked Friday night, and we were facers Friday night. Walter saved me from Iron Mike Sharp. But man, he could lay the shots in. And then uh, next day, we were heels, and Steve Lombardi was as going to clown the Brooklyn Brawler, at that point, he's playing oh, yes. going to clown. Mm-hmm. Walter was referee again, he's Beat the shit out of me that day. So uh, afterwards, we're getting dressed, and he says, "Hey, kid, come here." Okay, Walter, what's up? Here, he hands me some money, right? I'm like, Walter, he's like, "Yeah, take care of Nikolai. Keep doing good." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, thanks, man." So the Nikolai was like, "You know, Walter did not make much on the show. You're gonna have to do that." But Nikolai, I didn't expect it. He said, "That's the kind of guy he is." I've heard that from so many people over the years, that he was just so kind-hearted and a big-hearted guy like that. And you know, because you hear the stories of those guys in the early days, you know, they made five bucks, ten bucks, stuff like that, when they first were starting out, so they know. And he figured, hey, at least, you know, give him enough to cover his transportation. It was a good deal. He was a nice man, and I always cherished meeting him. Because I'm a Polish heritage as well as other mix in my blood, but yeah, it was just like you were And here's another one you hated as a kid for the things he would do to Bruno and Chief and everybody else and Tony Garia and people like that. That's like, and then here he is, just a wonderful guy. Same thing with the Valiant Brothers. You know, it's like, man, there was another discussion a few days ago about. Somebody on another board, not mine, asked who's the greatest tag team of all time. The fellow said, you know, it's usually, it applies to a person's, uh, whatever their time period that they were following with, and it's what their answer will be. It's like, no, it's the Valiant Brothers. Yeah, the Grands were great, without a doubt, the original Grands, but the Valiants sold out. As main event, the garden, I don't know how many times, numerous times, at least three in a row with Chief and Nikolai, uh, Chief and uh, Bruno. And uh, then they were, if not on time, the little three times, but then other venues, I should say, not just the garden, three times in the garden, and then other venues, they were main eventing Philadelphia Arena, the Spectrum, Capital Center, Baltimore. I was just like, who else do you know doing And then it singles, they could. They could bring it home too. So it's like, nah, they have to be, when you throw Lou Albano in there, forget it. It was insanity. It, they were just crazy to watch. <laughs> and it was just like, okay, why I'm up? Who's going to knock the Valiants off? And it, they went on for one thousand year, man. It's like, wow. And you know, the old the Vince McMahon senior and the old Capital Wrestling Corporation, they weren't in the business to lose money. So if you weren't going to deliver, you weren't going to be there. And I don't know that they planned to keep them a year of this campaign, but it was just like, 
how do you stop this train? And why would you let it run? It's just it's fantastic. Let him go. Absolutely. Okay. Here's another one that just kind of blew my mind because you mentioned Nikolai and it's it's well documented that you and him are were very close friends, but there's actually no story of how you two met. How did you well, and Nikolai meet? We met one day because back to my tape collection, I saw in a 7-Eleven window what, what would become a staple in my life, the cardboard advertised poster of a wrestling show that was coming to a local boys club on a Sunday afternoon. So I was working day shift in patrol at that time. So I said, wow, you know, that's uh, Nikolai Bolkov's going to be there. Maybe, maybe Nikolai can uh, give me a line on some matches. Because at that time, my collection wasn't that vast. I did, it was doing pretty good, but I still had a long ways to go to be where I was considered to be happy with. Which still wasn't done to this day. But anyway, I, I went there that day to this boys club, this local indie show. And I'm in uniform, and I remember Nikolai comes walking through the door, and he says, Hello, Sergeant! Because, of course, I had my insignia. And I say, hey, Nikolai... So then the time-honored tradition of Nikolai uh, coming out before the matches began to sell his gimmick. So I, I went over to sit down and talk with him, and I said, Hey, Nikolai, I'd like to know if you have any magazines, or uh, not magazines, but uh, tapes, because I'm a big collector. And he said, No, no, but I'd love to have some. I'll pay you. Even I said, No, you won't pay me. I said, I must have a hundred matches of yours, no problem. But no way would I take money from you. It's not going to happen. So I made ma- made a couple of tapes for Nicole with his matches. And then uh, from there, I kept hustling. It took some time. It took like maybe four or five, maybe even six months. And then finally, Nicole, I said, yeah, okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you, uh, you know, let me come back. You can do the manager. So it's like, yeah, that's cool. But we did become close. Without a doubt, we spent so much time in the car, going to airports, and the times, the hours. You know, it wasn't like nine to five. Sometimes you had to get up two o'clock in the morning to catch whatever flight, and you've just been driving or whatever, drive back home to New York, drive back to Baltimore, and was like, you know, we never had a crossword. I describe it as two kids that got loose from their parents, just always out having fun, teasing toll booth collectors, people all over the place, and, you know, just having fun. And that's the kind of guy he was, absolute opposite of his character. Uh, he's the guy that would give you shirts, pants, everything you needed. He would say, here, you take it. You need more than this. And he was just a wonderful human being. And this 29th of this month, he will be one year that he's gone and uh it's just yeah it's definitely sad but uh it's just not believable right is one thing but i I still some people say i do not believe that that he's gone yeah i i was really shocked and saddened because for me he was a part of my childhood so 
That's that was very sudden, from what I understand. Well, yeah, because you now here you go, legitimate. See, I I like to make reference to what I call wrestling professional wrestling true fiction, because uh, Nikolai's family they got their farm taken away. He hated that. He hated the the communists. So. Actually, the Nikolai Volkov of the 70s didn't wear red, didn't have the Soviet flag. He wore all black. Of course, his first gimmick was the Mongol, with Tito Mongol. And then after they left, he came back on his own as Nikolai Volkov. But the after the Hogan transition, then they decided to make a big deal, you know, push the Soviet Union as far and as hard as you can. And he didn't want to do that. As he tells her, Fred Blassie talked him into it. He said, right. you can show people what pastors they are, and you can make money out of it. He's So he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. So that's when they did that. But yeah, he did not like it at all. Really? Yeah, he did not like communism. But you know, he brought his parents to stay with him and his wife. Or they stayed like one year, and they went back home. He said, yeah. You know, we're just used to the way that is, and we just we can't settle in with America, so they went back. Huh. Interesting. Now, you have a book that just came out this year, and it is when it was real. Is that correct? When it was real, yeah. What? Oh, I mean, it, it kind of seems like an obvious answer, but what what inspired you to sit down and write, and who did you write it with? Well, the, there's actually a different little answer to this. The reason I wrote it, I was a severely abused child. I mean, never sexually, but I had the physical and psychological abuse. My father was an alcoholic, and it was a terrible childhood. It wasn't easy. But those men and women in pro wrestling, I emulated them. They helped me to survive by being like them. Hey, I'll tell you, David, I could have easily become a drug addict, run away, which again leads to the human trafficking problem. But, you know, what are you going to do? You got to eat, you need a place to sleep. So this is where people go and they fall into bad hands. So for me, following the wrestling was a great resources. And then, you know, hey, it leads me to the police department. It leads me, you know, to become a good person. So it was like, you know what? I'm going to give back to them. So I had just retired. We moved out to the long way to some Seattle area. So I said, okay, because her sister was having the breast cancer situation. So we said, all right, I've had enough. I figured I'd pack up and get out of town while I'm still in one piece and haven't ended up in jail or whatever. I just I don't like the writing on the wall as it pertains to law enforcement. I'm done. So we came out here. So for the first couple of years, it was like, okay, uh, I'm in good shape financially. I, I can uh, relax a little bit. So I just I sat down and I started to put this together, the book. And besides what's in my head, memory-wise, I sat down and reviewed the collection of tapes for accuracy, documented so much, and that took about two years. 
Then it took me six years to actually find someone to publish it. And that's when I met Scott Keel. One and only, one of the greatest people and a genius of a man. And Scott, I don't think he sleeps. I did ask his wife to tell a file out if he was a vampire. So I will tell him, but he just tell me the secret. But that, with that, he became vice president. That was a nightmare in itself to try to journal that situation. That was a lot of work. Plus, he's in the midst of all these books he publishes. So Scott at first said, no. You know, he's like, Nikita, we don't need another this day in history book. It's not that. Just read a little bit of it. You'll understand. It's like, ah, you know, right now I'm up to my eyes and things. Try me in like three or four months. You know, very polite, very nice guy. So I said, okay. So I went back second time. Still couldn't really get him. The third time, though, he says, all right, tell you what, send me a sample. And when I did, he said, we've got to do this. Because what the book is about, David, it's about a fan's perspective. Somebody that was on the outside looking in, who then became somebody on the inside looking out. But it's what wrestling meant to us. Yeah, it does cover things. And it's put together in chapters for each year of the 70s. But what it tells you is, this is what it meant to our lives. It wasn't something we watched. It's something we absorbed and became part of. And I tell you, and, and I, I'm very clear and very upfront with, I'm not here to knock today's product, what anybody has done or do. But look, if it's there for a kid today, like it was for me, that's great. And God bless. I'm, I'm happy. Just everybody stay safe and it's still wrestling, you know, so that's great. I can never knock it. Vince McMahon's got more billions than I do, so I'm not going to argue <laughs> with that. He knows what he's talking about. So it's like, huh? but you know what? People say to me, oh, you should watch this. Oh, you should be nice and really work. I said, you know what? I'm going to tell you. But it's not about that. It's about what they meant to us at that time. And you can't replace that. It's like, you know, if you were married to somebody for a long time and they die, it's like, okay, maybe you get remarried or have a girlfriend or whatever, but you're never going to replace that other person. Right. Know? Or like family died. And it's like, gee, that's there. That's burned into your soul. So, you know, to us, it meant a lot. And hey, look, we didn't have internet. All we had was one hour of wrestling after the commercials. And some of the promos for the local shows, that would be watered down to about 40 minutes. That's all you had. Yeah. And the rest, they did it while you were live at the building. And again, I always preach about people saying, well, wrestling's cyclical. No, it's not. Because I was one that would buy tickets the night of the current show for the next month's show, not even knowing what it would be. But because the, the next month's seats went on sale at 6, it was like, I wanted the best seats in the house. And I wasn't the only one. There was one maniac that get in line at noon to, or when the ticket window opened at 6 so he could get the best seats. So it was like, it meant that much to us. And it still does. And I'll tell you what, the Rock's mother was at California. And Asa, and I had talked to her the day before and kind of heard some stories about I keep Peter Miami over father. And uh, the next day, she came to the uh, merchandise area 
And I'm standing at the end of the table, you know, I'm full generic Scott one of me and he says, Go push your boots, so where are you starting? Plus I was managing a couple of nights during the show, so it was great. And I see her with Scott with the book. So I walk over at the office. She said, Oh, this is your book. She said, Yeah. I told her, Yes, that's the one. She's like, You know what made me look? The title. When it was real, because that's what my father tried to make it real. I said, Exactly. And he was perfect at it. He was excellent. You know, of course, Rocky, you can remember, and Rocky Johnson, too, his dad, it was like, man, he was sensational. Right. Without a doubt. I mean, he was sensational, Rocky Johnson, but he was a great actor, too. And, I mean, he just, not just in the East Coast, he was big name in L.A. and all over California, so, yeah. But Peter Maizio, when he hit the East Coast in 1977, man, that was tremendous. Teaming him with Strongbow as the Cheech, man, they were great. They, they were just so entertaining, and then on this course, they did the heel turn. Man, oh man, that one, and when Spiros Arion came against Bruno in 1975, 74 actually, it was late 74, but uh, he turned on Cheech and Bruno at the same time. Phew, those were things that stopped the world. I mean, it was important. I had friends that told me, they said, the cab in New York, at the cabbies park and went to watch the match between Bruno and Ariel. It was like, this stuff meant something to you. Look, I've been in a lot of worlds in my life. Police, acting, and art world, different things. People always want to talk about wrestling and what it meant to them. Doctors. The day I got there, I went to see the doctor. He said, come in tomorrow. I'll have the prostate cancer. I, I took my briefcase and I pulled out looking for some information, some promo shots coming. What is that? I said, oh, it's me and my wrestling partner, Nikolai Volkov. Really? And he's running down the hall with the pictures of my top. Wait, 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 what about the cancer? He's like, oh, I'll take care of you. will be okay. He's running around showing people the pictures. It's like, man, see, I'm telling you, wrestling means so much to so many people. It does. Now, uh, you mentioned being an actor, and that was actually on the list of questions um, that I would like to talk about, is that you came out with a movie this year called Necroland. And that's I won't... a series, actually. Oh, it's a series. Okay. Um, yes, and that, that was from Michigan. That's, a, that's an ongoing series. My part was shot you know, a little while ago, what I did for them. That's still in production. Now, the the big crowning glory was Rush with Danger. I've done quite a few. I worked with Darren Aronofsky on The Wrestler. Was not in it, but we did sit down with him, Nikolai, myself, and uh, Evan Ginsberg, Johnny Valiant, a couple other people were there. And uh, you know, but he's like, "What is this? I, I I don't know what wrestling is." So yeah, we gave him the pretty pretty good breakdown of it all. And then uh, worked with his writer for a while. But Brush with Danger is my claim to fame. With Livia Chone, even though it's spelled V-H-E-N-G, pronounced Chone. That was uh, a great movie about, basically, it's an, an immigration story about her and her brother. She's an artist. He's a martial arts fighter. Comes to Seattle on a container ship. And then she she has her uh, 
paintings in, in what they call like a little tube that they carry. So she's got them displayed. So the bad guy comes along and he's going to take advantage of both of them. And then here I come as the detective and save the day. But that was a that big movie, half filmed in Seattle, half in Hollywood. Then I did another movie with her called Insight. And I was actually a TV series in Baltimore on a cable network for one season, a talk show. And yeah, I've done things because it started with wrestling, as always. And it, we were doing documentaries. Somebody said, you know, those are acting credits. I'm like, who cares? You're doing wrestling. Anybody can see that acting. And, but then after a while, the anvil fell on my head and it was like, yeah, this is good. I mean, go do the acting too, you know? So it's like, that's it. I'm never done. I, you know, we got to pay the bills every month. And why not do things you love to do? If it helps you to, in police work, I love too. I never thought I'd retire, David. I thought they'd carry me kicking and screaming, but it was like, man, I've just seen too much in my time that it, it's gotten bad. It's gotten ugly. Politics, I'm not going to get into all that mess, but that's, that's a working gimmick as well. Right. I, I've seen that up close and personal from working in local government back there in Baltimore. It's like, Man, same thing like wrestling. Behind the curtain, they're all buddies. Out in front of the counter, they scream and you're fighting. This one murders babies. This one ate this. This one did that. It's like, and then they all buddy buddy. It's like one thing they have in common: they're all rich. I'll tell you that. <laughs> damn, damn, you're supposed to work for us, but yet it looks like we're working for you. So I tell people, please don't fight about politics. Don't don't be a, a political mark. I missed a question uh, about your book, and I, I apologize for that um, because I wanted to. I seen a, a segue to go into your acting, and I, I jumped into your acting. Um, my first question is: Do you have any memorable parts, like your favorite part or a story in the book that you can share with us about the book itself? Yes. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. See, for me, I knew I was meant to be in the ring because it was a show in Baltimore on October the 1st, 1977. And Chief was wrestling Professor Tanaka. I never met the professor. I wish I had. Man, one of my all-time favorite heels, without a doubt. But the month before, I discovered the secret. Secret being that you could actually get down to the ring side area and get close to the wrestler. Because Chief was wrestling superstar. He got him in the sleep. I said, that's it. He's going to be champion. I've got to be there. I'm running down to the first, from, from the middle concourse. By the time I got to the steps, Chief is thrown into the ropes. By the time I got to the floor, him and Graham collided. Chief's out of the ring and counted out. I'm like, oh, man. But anyway, here comes Superstar. He's limping away. People are screaming, spitting, cussing, punching at him. I'm like, wow, it's crazy. <laughs> but I'm like, Ooh, look how big Superstar is. Then here comes Chief. And it's like, wow, Chief is a giant. You don't look that big on television. So I got close to him. I slapped him on the chest. The Chief good match. And he's like, bullshit. He's mad. He's stopping off after Grim. So the next month, I'm down there by the ring. Waiting for him to come out, Tanaka comes out. And he had broken, had his ankle broken by Calhoun in August. 
that's a league all the tag team title change that you know, because of that. So he's he was wearing boots, which is not normal for professor. Usually the wrestle wearing the boots. So he's you heard the swishing of the boots coming across the floor and it's just that stare and it's like of course he's on guard because they always got attacked, they feel it. It's like, man, there's no way I'm gonna mess with him. So then all of a sudden the flash cubes are going off. No music. Just people erupting. You could see the white headdress in the background. Here comes the chief. And it's like, yeah, yeah, here he comes. And I'm wearing a shirt. It's an orange shirt with a Indian chief, and it has the word, the letter in chief on it. And I've got my hand outstretched, and all of a sudden it went black. Boom. I'm hit from behind by one of the security guards. Big son of a gun knocked me down. I'm 17 years old at the time, and I must weigh 140 pounds. The chief stops. He looks at the guy like, you jerk. He reaches over and picks me up. I'm like, holy mackerel. That's it. I'm gone. If I didn't already love him, I'm over the moon now. That's it. So the match ended. Tanaka has got Chief in the sleeper. And and Tanaka throws the salt. Uh, Chief's got Tanaka in the sleeper. Tanaka throws the salt. Blinds Chief, so he's disqualified. So I go running back to the ringside. Tanaka is escorted by most of the security because they're trying to murder him. <laughs> so Chief's staggering all over and he's blinded. You know, so I was like, oh man, I'm waiting. The guards didn't know which end of the ring he was going to come out on because of the staggering. Then he comes out on my side. So I'm trying to pick up this 250 pound guy and brush the salt off. Chief, you'll be alright. So here they come, boom, boom, boom. They knock me out of the way and carry him off and it's like wow I get back to the seat and it, my friends are like you know what you just did I'm like yeah unbelievable look at this I got the salt from the cheese look at this it's unreal you know that's so that cool it. <laughs> and from that point on well I had been there before to see the professional wrestling line. And one time in particular, it was Lou Albano against Bruno, August 16th of 75. And that's all you needed was to throw Lou to the line with anybody, Chief, Bruno, Pedro. And everybody else could take that night off. You don't have a saw. We just wanted to see Albano destroyed. And it, Lou always delivered, never failed. And after that match, Bruno murdered him, blood all over the place. The trail, it just went all the way to the dressing room. And it's like, yeah, man, look at that. Lou Albano just, he was just shredded. <laughs> and by the way, he became a mentor over the years, Lou did. So did Bruno. I did actually got to work a couple of matches with Bruno when he was referee. Oh, wow. And so that's like, now I'm lucky. I'm one of the luckiest cats that ever walked the earth because it's like, not only did I get to meet these idols, and in some cases, people I hated, but I actually got to work with them. So it was like, yeah, Bruno and uh, then Albano being a manager, you know, I learned a lot from Lou. And he was just so easy. And the good thing about Lou that separated him from Blassie and the Wizard, but Freddie would rather be remembered more as the great wrestler that he was. But, you know, he was is fantastic. It was a natural to have that transition as well when his act of wrestling was done to just make a manager keep him around because this guy 
I mean, Freddie was on, he was involved in Hollywood, he was on uh, Dick Van Dyke shows and many other things. He was all over the place. Uh, he was larger than life as well. So, to, but to me, then that's why I got to go back to say, I think Lou Albano was probably the greatest manager of all time. Crazy on the microphone, could deliver, and not only did he get the fans heated, but then you could feed him to the Lions and then give the fans the satisfaction of seeing, hey, he got his, so that's good. So then everybody goes home happy, which is the end result. Very cool. Um, we are getting ready to wrap up. I've only got two more questions for you, sir. And the ne the next question is is simply, where can I get a copy of your book? Where can my listeners pick up a copy? The book will be purchased at crowbarpress.com. It's all handled by Scott Teal. C-R-O-W-B-A-R press.com, all one word. And my God, you look at that page, Scott Teal's got so many wonderful books about so many great people. And that's it. That's the best place to get it. Okay. And it, it's, uh, do you know how much it is? Off? I forgot to write the, the price. How much I believe it's worth? Oh, okay. So standard book price. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the thing that really got me was, I, I didn't know this, because I'm looking at the advertisement before I get the book, and I'm saying, geez, how many images do we need? 227 images. Like, I didn't get them that many. I'm thinking, uh-oh, what's going on? But then, when I got the book, the newspaper clippings, which was our major point of advertisement in those days, and I, I'm a sucker for clippings. I just love that. So it's like, oh, this is great. So each clipping that Scott has in there, and I don't misunderstand, there's not a clipping for each event that we talk about, but the ones that are associated, he has them strategically placed in the book. So it's like, man, this is, it's just cool. It flows beautifully. So I love it. Very cool. Okay. And my final question for you, sir, is, what made you decide to leave the world of wrestling? Oh, I'm not done. I'm not out of it. Not, not by any stretch of the imagination. I, I was just at Cauliflower Alley's celebration, not just to get the book off the ground, but to uh, mix and mingle. And then I ended up working as a manager that night, a couple of nights actually, and then I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, not long ago, managing a couple of guys there. And I don't think I'll ever be done. I stay in good shape, and a couple of retired promoters said to me, how come nobody's not picking up this Russia angle? I mean, all this stuff with President Trump and the Russia is like, and I don't know. I, I guess some people feel it's too old school and it won't work today, but you never know. It, what it looks like is old news in wrestling next week will be something brand new again, so you never say never. And That's so you true. You know what will happen. I, I, I say ready. Bags are always packed, ready to roll. So I want to thank you so much. You you literally made me just like I I feel overwhelmed with nostalgia right now. I like I want to go pop in some old you know some good old wrestling uh, you, you know because I, I I have the network so I can go and, and watch the old school wrestling. That's that's kind of the the nostalgia that I'm feeling. But thank you so well, much. Why, 
that's why I called it when it was real, because we looked at it. Yeah, yeah, from day one I heard it's this and that, but we could look at it that way, and it was presented that way. Newspapers reported the match results, and it's like, wow. So, yeah, please do. Always enjoy the wrestling. That's what it's about. We share with each other. We share the memories, and we share just the brotherhood of wrestling. We're all in it. Yes, and I I am personally going to be picking up a copy, and I suggest my listeners grab a copy as well. And that is at crowbarpress.com, and it's when it was real. And I, I just can't wait to, to read the, the stories that you have to tell us, because you're an excellent storyteller audibly. So I can't wait to read what you have to tell as well. Thank you, my friend. All right, gang, for this week, for My Public Life as an American Nerd, I am David K. Montoya, and... He's a version of the artist. And as always, I bid you adieu.